You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 255, The Battle of Ramser's Mill. When we last left the South back in episode 251, British General Henry Clinton had departed with most of the army to return to New York. Clinton had received word that the French army would be arriving soon and wished to contend with that. He left Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis in command at Charleston, South Carolina. General Cornwallis has been a part of our story in many earlier episodes, But since this is his first really big independent command, and since he plays such a key role in the Southern Theater, I thought a refresher was in order. Cornwallis came from the very top of British aristocracy. He was the son of the fifth Baron Cornwallis. His mother was the daughter of a Viscount. His uncle was the Archbishop of Canterbury. As a boy, Cornwallis attended Eton. He purchased his first military commission as an ensign at the age of 17. But rather than go into service, as most young officers did to learn their profession, Cornwallis traveled to Europe, where he enrolled in the military academy at Turin, in what is today Italy. After that, he went on a tour of Central Europe. When the Seven Years' War began, Cornwallis's regiment shipped out for America, but before he could reach it. So instead, he attached himself as an aide to Lord Granby, commander-in-chief of British forces in Europe. He fought at the Battle of Minden, and shortly afterwards purchased a captaincy. Before long, he had been breveted to lieutenant colonel. While he was still fighting in Europe, his family got Cornwallis elected to Parliament. He only spent a little over a year as a member of the House of Commons before his father died, and he took up his father's seat in the House of Lords. In Parliament, Cornwallis showed a strong sympathy for the colonies. He voted against the Stamp Act, the Declaratory Act, and the Intolerable Acts. Yet, by the time the war began, Cornwallis, by that time a major general, volunteered to go to war. He even proposed a campaign to retake the southern colonies. As a result, the ministry granted him another promotion to lieutenant general in America in 1776, and he shipped off with General Clinton to retake the Carolinas. I'm not going to go through all the details of Cornwallis's leadership in the war, but I will note that he frequently wanted to return home to be with his ailing wife. He planned to leave for London in late 1776 when he got called back from his ship to go fight Washington at Trenton. In late 1777, after the fighting season had ended, he did return home, and he did the same at the end of the 1778 fighting season. While in Britain, he spent time with his wife, who unfortunately was getting continually sicker. During one visit home, Cornwallis had an audience with the king, in which he told George III that the war's success was hopeless. 
Despite his assessment, the king allowed him to receive a permanent promotion as lieutenant general, and he became second in command to General Clinton. The following year, he returned to England once again and resigned his commission to be by his wife's side as she lay on her deathbed. She did finally die in 1779, after which time Cornwallis once again offered his services to the king. He returned to service in America, not because he thought that they could win the war, but simply because he was too depressed to remain in Britain following his wife's death, and he pretty much just wanted to be back with his old army buddies in America. When he returned, everyone, including General Clinton, thought that Cornwallis would shortly replace Clinton as commander in North America following Clinton's resignation. Clinton and Cornwallis had their personal disagreements, but Clinton seemed ready to bring Cornwallis up to speed on everything so that Clinton could go home and be rid of this war. When word finally came from London that Clinton's letter of resignation had been rejected and that he would continue in command, things between the two generals seemed to fall apart. Cornwallis basically left headquarters and told Clinton to consult with other officers. Clinton was offended that Cornwallis had basically checked out after learning that he would not succeed to command. And despite this falling out, Clinton took Cornwallis to Charleston, South Carolina, when the army made its invasion in 1780. Their personal relationship seemed to get even worse during this siege when Clinton came to believe that Cornwallis was undermining him with other officers by spreading rumors that Clinton was about to resign. Cornwallis refused to provide Clinton with any advice and asked that Clinton not consult with him on strategy. Clinton saw this as a way of Cornwallis distancing himself in case the campaign failed. During this time, Cornwallis wrote to London asking to be reassigned to any other theater in the world where Clinton was not in command. During the siege, Cornwallis took command of a corps that separated from Clinton's main army, so both men were happy when Clinton returned to New York, leaving Cornwallis with his own command in the South. Now, Also, as I outlined in episode 251, the British pacification strategy in South Carolina hinged on the assumption that there were a great many Southern colonists who could be coaxed into serving the king by joining Loyalist militias. Clinton had relied on that when he issued his edict in June of 1780, just before leaving for New York, that all colonists, even rebels on parole, would be expected to join Loyalist militias or be considered traitors. Relying on the growth of these Loyalist militias, Clinton left Cornwallis with a rather small force of a little over 3,000 soldiers. These were a mix of regulars, Hessians, and Loyalist regiments that had been raised in the North. Brigadier General James Patterson took immediate command in Charleston, while General Cornwallis took the bulk of his army into the backcountry. By the time Clinton left for New York on June 5th, the British had moved into the backcountry, setting up outposts that covered most of the state. These included Georgetown, a little over 50 miles up the coast from Charleston, and then extending inland northwest to Camden, near the North Carolina border, then across to Fort 96, which had been a center of rebel activity before the British came, and then down to Augusta, Georgia. Now, spreading out the army like this was designed to facilitate recruiting Loyalist militia and keeping troops of soldiers close to any area where small groups of rebels might try to organize or fight back. 
For the effort to raise militia in the backcountry, Clinton had given primary responsibility to Major Patrick Ferguson, who you may remember played some key roles in several northern battles before sailing south with Clinton and Cornwallis. Ferguson had received an appointment as Inspector of Militia in South Carolina. In that role, his primary mission was to organize Loyalist militia groups in the backcountry to supplement Cornwallis's army and to put down any rebel activity. Ferguson had a reputation for honor and gallantry, which is often exemplified by his refusal to shoot an American officer in the back at the Battle of Brandywine, who some believe may have been George Washington. He noted in South Carolina that they were not there to harm women and children, but to relieve their distress. Ferguson was not afraid to use force and violence against rebels, but he also saw the need to win the hearts and minds of the civilian population. To Ferguson's north, in the backcountry, Colonel Bannister Tarleton's legion took a very different approach. I've already discussed Tarleton's massacre at Waxhaws. His legion also roamed the countryside, killing suspected rebels and burning their homes. They were not above roughing up civilians, including women and children, who they suspected of aiding the rebels. At one point, Ferguson wanted to shoot several of Tarleton's men who had raped Tory women. Despite their very different methods, both Ferguson and Tarleton managed to recruit and organize large numbers of Loyalist militia, while at the same time forcing unrepentant rebels to flee into the swamps or into North Carolina. As the British pacification plan in South Carolina was taking hold, it inspired Loyalists in North Carolina to organize more openly with the expectation that a British army would soon enter North Carolina. Cornwallis had sent representatives into North Carolina to spread the word that the British would arrive soon, but that Loyalists should continue to lay low so that patriots would not take them out before the British army arrived in force. Instead, Cornwallis wanted the Loyalists to harvest and store their crops, which the British army would need when it moved into the state. Lieutenant Colonel John Moore of the North Carolina Loyalist Militia had been fighting under Cornwallis in South Carolina. He rode into North Carolina to known Tory strongholds around Ramsers Mill, which is about 30 miles northwest of Charlotte, to pass along Cornwallis's instructions. Another officer from Moore's Loyalist Regiment, Major Nicholas Welch, also began speaking to local Loyalists, spreading the word of the British victory at Waxhaws, and began gathering up volunteers for a Tory regiment, despite the orders of doing it at this time. By June 20th, about 1,300 Loyalist volunteers from the region had assembled on a ridge near Ramsers Mill. Many had brought their own arms, but about a quarter of them didn't even have weapons. They expected the regulars would provide them with arms when they arrived. A few miles away, in Charlotte, North Carolina, Militia General Griffith Rutherford received news of the Tory gathering. Since he did not have soldiers on hand to challenge this growing threat, he ordered Colonel Francis Locke to raise the local Patriot militia and disperse these Loyalists. On June 13th, Locke had about 200 militia volunteers assembled near Ramsers Mill. Within a few days, the arrival of other militia units doubled his numbers to about 400. Locke planned to meet up with additional reinforcements being gathered by General Rutherford 
and launch a night attack on the Loyalists. On the appointed night, Rutherford was a no-show. His forces had gotten lost somewhere on the back roads in the North Carolina countryside. Without those reinforcements, Locke called a council of war with his fellow militia officers to decide what to do. His group of 400 militia could not attack an enemy with more than three times their size and holding the defensible high ground. Rather than risk a counterattack against his own camp, Colonel Locke suggested that they pull back and await Rutherford's reinforcements. At the council, though, some of the less experienced officers wanted to go forward with the attack anyway, and some of these officers suggested that pulling back would not be an act of military prudence, it would be an act of cowardice. Uh, With the C-word out there, none of the officers could support pulling back. So they finally agreed to launch an attack at daybreak. Since almost all the militia on both sides were wearing civilian clothes, the Loyalists put twigs in their hats to identify themselves, and the Patriots put scraps of white paper in their hats. Just before dawn, the Patriots were within a mile of the enemy lines. They marched forward, driving in the Loyalist pickets, who fired warning shots, which alerted the main Loyalist camp. The Loyalists scrambled from their tents and were still trying to form a line when the Patriot horsemen had gotten within about 30 yards. And despite the confusion, the Loyalists realized there were only a few enemy cavalry and managed to drive off the attackers. The horsemen turned and retreated. As they did, some of the approaching infantry believed this was an all-out retreat and also turned around before they even got to the battlefield. Loyalist riflemen began picking off the advancing Patriot militia who had to cross a flat open field to engage with the enemy. No Patriot officers were really in charge, but the men kept advancing anyway. As the main line advanced against the center, several small units made their way against both Loyalist flanks and began to turn them. Amazingly, the militia advance continued despite taking heavy casualties. They reached the enemy lines at about the same time that the flanking companies attacked on both sides. The fight devolved into brutal hand-to-hand combat by these former neighbors in both militias. Despite having far greater numbers, the stunned Tories fled the field. Some of them simply removed the twigs from their hats and pretended to be Patriot militia until they had a chance to escape safely. Some distance away, the fleeing Loyalists reassembled and viewed their opponents from a distance. They realized that they far outnumbered the enemy and prepared for a counterattack. The Patriots prepared to defend against a counterattack, but by this point they had just over a hundred men. They had taken about 170 casualties in the initial assault, and the remainder had fled the field. Locke ordered two of his officers to ride hard and see if they could find Rutherford's reinforcements. At this point, the general was still about seven miles away from the sound of the fighting when the officers reached him. He immediately deployed his 65 dragoons on horseback to ride at a gallop to support Locke's militia. As the Patriot militia awaited the counterattack with these overwhelming numbers, a loyalist came forward under a flag of truce. He asked for a suspension of hostilities so that they could care for their wounded on the field and bury their dead. The Patriot Major, who was sent out to speak with them, sensed a tone of defeatism and countered with a demand that they should surrender within ten minutes or be attacked. As it turned out, no one really wanted to attack. 
Colonel Moore had used the negotiation time to tell the Loyalists under his command to scatter and find safety wherever they could. By the time the officer who had ridden out under the flag of truce had returned to his camp, the Loyalist army of over a thousand men had dwindled down to about fifty, and those soon fled as well. In total, about 140 men were killed and over 200 wounded, with about equal casualties on both sides. Colonel Moore returned to the British base at Camden with only about 30 men and news of the disaster. British officers, apoplectic that he had disobeyed orders and allowed a large group of Loyalist militia to rise and gather before they were ready, considered a court-martial. In the end, they decided against it, realizing that punishing well-meaning but incompetent Loyalist volunteers might have a negative impact on future recruiting efforts. Back in South Carolina, the Patriot militia were still organizing and hiding from mostly Loyalist militia who were assigned to crush any such gatherings. They needed to prevent these smaller outfits from moving north to combine with the gathering army of militia and Continentals that would inevitably mount some attack at some point. One of the Patriot militia officers that the British had arrested was Colonel John Thomas, who commanded the Spartan Militia Regiment from the area around Spartansburg, South Carolina. They had taken him to be held as a prisoner at Fort 96 under the command of Major Patrick Ferguson. Thomas's capture, however, did nothing to dissuade his regiment from continuing to organize. His son, Colonel John Thomas Jr., simply took over his father's position in commanding the regiment. The younger Colonel Thomas continued to keep his men, four companies totaling about 60 men, in a field near Cedar Springs. They hoped to join up with the gathering Patriot militia under Thomas Sumter. When the British learned of the position of the Patriot militia, Major Ferguson deployed about 150 Loyalists to kill or capture this rebel force. The Loyalists planned a pre-dawn attack on the rebel camp in the early hours of July 12th. They crept toward the camp in the dark, seeing the enemy's fires. The Loyalists stormed the camp, expecting to bayonet the sleeping soldiers in a Paoli-style massacre. Instead, they found empty bedrolls and no one in camp. Then, the confused attackers began taking fire from the nearby forest. The Patriot militia let loose a volley against the attackers, causing the surprised Loyalists to flee the field. It turns out the Patriots had been tipped off. News of the attack became the topic of discussion among some of the Loyalists' wives camped near Fort 96. Presumably, many of their husbands were with the Loyalists who had been deployed to contend with these rebels. One of the wives who overheard these discussions was most definitely not a Loyalist. Jane Thomas was the wife of Colonel John Thomas, who had been at the fort to visit her husband in prison. After she heard that the British planned to attack her husband's regiment, which was now commanded by her son, Mrs. Thomas mounted her horse and rode at a brisk pace, covering 60 miles distance in one day. She managed to beat the Loyalists back to Cedar Springs and warn her son that night, July 11th. Colonel Thomas then ordered his men to stoke the fires, but then move into a position in the forest near the camp. So, when the Loyalists struck the camp, his men were ready to ambush them. As I said, the battle was over pretty much before it started. The surprised Loyalists immediately fled, despite still outnumbering the Patriots. 
The Patriots did not have the numbers to pursue and engage them, so they simply packed up and moved on before the Loyalists could strike again. Throughout July, there were many of these little raids back and forth. Another group of Patriots attacked a Loyalist force at Stallion's Plantation the same night of the Loyalist attack at Cedar Spring. I already mentioned the attack on Christian Huck's men in an earlier episode, which also happened around this same time. A day later, a group of about 35 Georgia Patriots attacked a Loyalist camp at Goins Fort. And a few days after that, a Loyalist force hit a group of Patriot at Earl's Ford. There were probably another 10 or so incidents over the next couple of weeks, all involving no more than a few dozen men. The fighting was relatively uncoordinated and involved small units on both sides, both intent on obstructing the enemy from doing whatever they were trying to do. Although the British claimed to be in control of South Carolina, these many skirmishes told a very different story. And next time, I'm going to continue my discussion of some of these skirmishes, but much like the British in New Jersey during the Forage Wars of 1777, the British in South Carolina were quickly discovering that defeating a large army and simply claiming control of a region would not end the resistance. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Mike Gaylord. And also to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard and Knox Press. Knox Press recently announced the upcoming release of David O. Stewart's The Burning Land, which follows a Hessian family through American history. This new volume is set in the Civil War, but if you haven't read the first volume yet, The New Land, it's set in the American Revolution. I also want to thank Gail Sarah, Michael Byrne, and Eva Zotra for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I greatly appreciate everyone who supports this podcast and helps me cover my ever-increasing costs. I wanted to let everyone know that in October, I'm going to be in Louisville, Kentucky, at the Sons of the American Revolution headquarters to host a conference there on the origins of the Constitution. If you're in the area within driving distance of Louisville, I'd love to see you there. If you are a lawyer in Kentucky, you can get CLE credit for the conference. Go to nathanspapers.com for more details. Now, this week's episode covered the growing quagmire for the British in South Carolina. 
The British tried numerous different strategies to pacify the countryside after taking several different large cities during the war, but none of them succeeded entirely. Part of the problem may have been failure to commit to a consistent strategy. One of the things I talked about today was Major Ferguson was trying to win the hearts and minds of the locals by bringing back order and trying to show the locals why British rule would end the chaos and violence. At the same time, you have folks like Colonel Bannister Tarleton burning homes and hanging traitors. I suppose if it worked, we would have called it a successful good cop, bad cop routine where people saw the benefits of compliance and the consequences of resistance. But it didn't work because there was little consistency and simply not enough soldiers to stabilize the region. We also see the beginnings of a Loyalist uprising in North Carolina that gets crushed before it could even get started. The failure of Southern Loyalists to organize and fight well without British leadership is probably the main reason the British could not hold on to the Southern colonies in the end. My book recommendation this week is The Road to Guilford Courthouse, The American Revolution in the Carolinas by John Buchanan. As the title indicates, it focuses on the war in the Carolinas. It begins with some of the attempted attacks in 1776, then jumps to the Siege of Charleston in 1780, and focuses most of its pages on the fighting throughout 1780 and 81. It's about 400 pages, not counting notes and index. I found the book quite helpful in covering many events, large and small, during this time period. The author, John Buchanan, is a historian who has worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and also Cornell University. I wanted to say this is a relatively new book because it was published in 1997, but then I kind of realized that 1997 was a quarter of a century ago, and that just makes me feel old. There is a Kindle version of the book and also an audiobook version. You can also find an e-copy that you can borrow on archive.org. So, if you want a book that focuses on the Southern War in 1780 and 81, get a copy of The Road to Guilford Courthouse. My online recommendation is an article from the Journal of the American Revolution that takes a closer look at the other skirmish that I highlighted this week, the Battle of Cedar Springs where the Loyalists raided a Patriot camp, only to discover the Patriots were hiding in the woods and ready to ambush them. There is some question about whether the events I described really happened, or whether it was local lore made up later. You might infer, since I included it, that I feel pretty confident about its authenticity. But if you want to read more about this, check out the article, Did the First Cedar Spring Skirmish Really Happen? by Connor Runyon. As always, links to the book and online recommendation are available on my blog and website. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com to read those sources. My question this week asks, Why do Americans call King George III a tyrant if Frederick North was actually in charge of Britain during the Revolutionary War? I thought this was a particularly good question this week, given that the role of the monarchy is... And in the news these days, as we're seeing the historic passage of the sovereignty from Queen Elizabeth II to King Charles III, it is true that in Britain, the role of the monarchy in government has shrunk over time to the point where the king or queen is a mere figurehead today. The English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution both saw marked decreases in the actual role for the king. 
Kings George I and II had taken an even more limited role in government. Both men were born and raised in what is today Germany and never really expected to rule Britain until later in life. George I only got the job because Queen Anne died without issue, all of her children dying before reaching adulthood. There were probably 30 other people who were closer in the family line to Anne for the crown, but they were all either Catholic or married to a Catholic, which barred them from taking the throne. George I, Anne's second cousin, eventually got the offer. George I didn't speak English, and he regularly traveled back to his home in Hanover. As a result, the British adopted the practice of having a prime minister during his reign in order to manage the ministry because the king wasn't doing it. So the British had gotten used to a king who did almost nothing by the time George III took the throne. But George III was different from his grandfather and great-grandfather, George I and II. George III spoke English, and he wanted more of a role in governing. He attended ministry meetings and regularly met with his cabinet. He accepted or rejected ministers based on his personal preferences. Now, despite George III's heightened role, the colonies initially did not hold the king responsible for Parliament's impositions on colonial rights. The colonies, in fact, petitioned the king in hopes that he would intercede on their behalf as the traditional defender of English liberties. Even in late 1775, after open warfare had begun, many colonial leaders still held out hope that the king would intervene and broker a political compromise between Parliament and the colonies. King George, however, believed his role was to back Parliament, and as a matter of policy, he supported Parliament's position. He encouraged the appointment of hardliners to his government, and in late 1775 gave a speech to Parliament calling for the suppression of the rebellion in North America by military force. This speech by the king was the final turning point for most colonists. They saw the king as someone who wanted to rule by force rather than implementing a government structure that the people found acceptable. That was the definition of tyranny. As a result of the king's actions, popular opinion in the colonies turned toward independence. John Adams later remarked that the king's actions in late 1775 made him the single most influential person in turning popular opinion toward independence. The king continued to play an active role in the war, hiring Hessians to supplement British regulars. Prime Minister Lord North tried to resign several times, but the king refused to accept his resignation fearing his replacement would seek a negotiated settlement with the colonists. As a result, the king personally became most associated with the policy of war on the colonies. The result was an unprecedented criticism of the king himself, not just in the colonies, but in Britain. Even though outright criticism of the king was legally treason, we see at least indirect attacks on the king's policies. The result of this was that, following George III's reign, none of his successors attempted to take on such an active policy role in government again. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The 
French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.